everyone, welcome to another episode of Poetry Says. I'm Alice and I'm really excited to share this chat with you today. I had a fantastic time talking to Melbourne-based writer and spoken word poet Ria Bagat. And Ria was kind enough to chat with me just after I cold contacted her after reading a piece of hers that was published in The Lifted Brow. And this piece, which was published in the Capital issue, which came out a little bit earlier this year, is about Ria's experience of living in Dubai. I've only been to Dubai the one time, but it was such a fascinating and strange place and the kind of place that you kind of initially think, I don't know if this is really a place that can be written about, but I was proved more than wrong when I was reading this piece and I just thought, man, I would love to speak with this writer. So I'm so glad that Ria spent the time with me. So the piece, just to give you a little flavour of what it's like, it's called Dava, and it starts out like this. Hammer and Sickle Uncle Rahul has a cancerous orange hummer. Burnished with bronze, it glows like a Midwestern debutante. Swarovski shimmer on the rims. Rahul drives us to his villa on the palm. His fiancée, Candy, is in the front seat sipping a caramel frappuccino. Candy is a yogi and a world wanderer. We cross the invisible border into New Dubai. Ghettos give way to golf courses. Lush rolling expanses of grass and glittering lagoons. Jagged skyscrapers splinter through the sky. Malls are shaped like ancient pyramids. Pharaohs luxuriate in their marbled sarcophagi. A sphinx straddles a Starbucks. So, yeah, it just gets better from there. So if you can get your hands on the capital issue of The Lifted Brow, um, I highly recommend it. But if not, Rhea has a great piece on Overland as well. And this is a piece looking at a duo called The Sweatshop Boys. And they are going to lead you into all kinds of fascinating corners. Um, I'm going to do some pretty extensive show notes for this episode, actually, because Along with the Sweatshop Boys, we cover a huge range of topics from Aziz Ansari to Nas, Beyonce, The Moth, and obviously what it was like for Ria to live in Dubai. And that's all before we get to the poem, which is from Robin Cost Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Sable Venus. It's a beautiful long poem and we only look at one section of it, but I think you'll really enjoy that as well. so much for talking to me today Ria this is awesome no, that's okay thank you for having me no worries um so I contacted you really as soon as I finished reading your piece in the lifted brow which is called Dava mm. yeah I, I just loved it so much it's about living in Dubai is that right you actually mm -hmm. lived there yes yes I did um I spent quite a few years there um particularly during my adolescence um, and I found it to be a really strange, um, disorienting experience in some ways. Um, and it was a really valuable experience in other ways. Um, but it was interesting. I hadn't ever seen any representation of the South Asian female experience living in a place like Dubai. Um, you know, firstly, like Dubai is very, very rarely, I think, reflected in literature in any way. I mean, the closest thing I've seen to a literary representation of Dubai was an essay by George Saunders for GQ called The New Mecca because I was I mean it was just like really fascinating to look up if there was anything that I could look at for you know um, a point of reference when I was writing it um, so I found it extraordinary because um, you know Dubai and just you know a lot of those wealthy um, nations in the Middle East like um, Qatar and Bahrain and Oman and Saudi Arabia um, I mean the kind of literature that's often written about them is um, kind of like Western travel literature and it's often very simplistic um, and there's hardly anything written either by, you know, uh, people who are from those countries or, um, I mean, I don't like to use the word expat because um, I think it's like quite a loaded term, but um, the various diasporas that exist there because really in Dubai, for example, um, 
only about 10% of the population is um, are UAE nationals. So they actually are from the United Arab Emirates um, and the rest are um, all migrants from various countries. Um, and I just had never seen that experience represented. And so I thought I, um, you know, the browse theme um, was capital. And so it was, you know, just talking about the different ways in which, um, you know, capital affect art and affect our lives. Um, and I just thought it was kind of the perfect um, theme to encapsulate what Dubai was about and what my piece was about, because I think in Dubai, um, wealth intersects with, I mean, wealth and class intersect, um, you know, really jarringly with race and gender. Um, and so, I mean, I'm not, I'm not much of a nonfiction writer in a traditional sense, but I had an idea of writing these prose poems, a series of prose poems about it, because um, I just found, uh, I just find prose poetry to be a really fun kind of experimental way to approach nonfiction um, and a way to kind of get lots of um, sort of vivid, disparate images together, like tie them together in, in a piece. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm yeah. glad you, you characterise it as prose poetry because that is how I, once I finished the piece, I thought, oh, mm. this is a long poem, really. Yeah, um, yeah, that was sort of the objective. Yeah, and it does so beautifully show just the um yeah the huge disparate kind of images mm -hmm. and experiences that i mean look yeah. i spent like 36 hours in dubai in my life <laughs> but um did it, it give you a sense of what the place was like and like yeah. what we i was just curious about what your impressions were as um sort of a person just passing through well look as a as a white suburbanite i felt mm. like i was missing 99% of what was going on mm -hmm. I was like okay so I'm going to go into this mall I'm going to look at the Burj uh, yeah and uh, we went Just on one the, of those classic yeah yeah yeah. yeah 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 we went on like a I mean it's sort of awful to admit I feel bad even saying this but we went on one of those four-wheel drive safari things oh no no you have to go on the four-wheel drive <laughs> safari it was so great them. like I With loved the... it yeah, but, with the belly dancer and yes, the falcon. Yeah, it was so good. But, like, at the yeah. same time, I'm like, this is so um, – this is this is constructed specifically yeah. for someone exactly like me and it's probably got nothing to do with what life is like. So that's why I loved your piece because, like, mm. I got just glimpses of, as you say, somebody who lived there, a female who lived there, mm. and – yeah, just all these sides to living in Dubai that I knew must have been there but couldn't mm. in any way access in the time I had. So, yeah. No, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I think that it's interesting um, because my experience of Dubai, um, having lived there, is despite the fact that I'm quite critical of it, um, I have a lot of friends who are um, also South Asian who, um, you know, grew up there and they absolutely love it. They, they, they always consider it home. They feel um, incredibly comfortable there. Um, they don't share the same um, sort of critiques that I have where I find that, um, as you said, Dubai has a really glamorous facade, um, but, you know, it's kind of built on the back of a lot of very exploitative labor. And I think something that really struck me being there and that I think a lot of people um, experience living there is that you just learn to turn away. You just realize that um, when you, you know, when you see the exploitation of um, migrant labor from um, places like South Asia and the Philippines, um, you know, building buildings in ridiculously short period of time in um, conditions that just aren't safe, um, you, it shocks you at first, but then you realize that you fall into this comfortable set of complacency, um, this comfortable kind of complacency after a while, and you just get distracted by, you know, the the shiny cavernous malls and, you know, the indoor ice skating and, you know, all that kind of thing. Um, and I just, what really strikes me is sort of not having moved away from there, um, because my, my um, I'm, I live in Melbourne now and my um, parents have all um, moved from Dubai as well, so I just haven't traveled back there. Um, but what strikes me on reflection um, of Dubai is that it's just an incredibly unsustainable way to live, <laughs> um, which is kind of stating the obvious, but um, I sort of wonder, you know, as the world um, continues to change and move away from um, the use of fossil fuels, how this incredibly unsustainable way of life is going to evolve. Um, because really, 50 years ago, um, it was, you know, a group of um, nomadic Bedouins in the desert, um, you know, 
using wind towers to cool their um, dwellings and um, living off the land. And, you know, now it's transformed into this cosmopolis. So I'm just, I'm curious to see, you know, how it's going to go from here, really. Yeah, because you could imagine it being this deserted wasteland Mm -hmm. uh, with no people and the buildings just kind of slowly getting swallowed back up by the desert. It's like the... The, yeah, the yeah. battle against the desert seems like... Yeah, it's that's, a losing you know... battle. It's a, it's a CN task, really, building yeah. all these glamorous malls. And, and what I find, um, and, so, and an image that I find incredibly striking, and I, and I, mean, I tried to put it into the piece in um, one of the vignettes, was um, during the global financial crisis in Dubai, um, there were huge property developments that were left abandoned. Um, and in Dubai, with the property developments, there are often these whole housing colonies where every single house looks exactly the same, which is sort of a deeply unnerving experience. You drive down streets and you have, you know, rows on rows of identical homes. And when the global financial crisis happened and, you know, um, all the property prices crashed and people were fleeing the country, um, you had these huge sort of stark skeletal structures just sitting in the desert um, that were being slowly reclaimed because construction had ended on them. And I just, yeah, I just find that image really um, striking. And I think that, um, yeah, it's just interesting to see um, how it's going to go forward in the future and whether, because I mean, yeah, the city just can't continue growing at this pace. You keep hearing every year they come up with new developments, like they're going to build, they've already got the world's tallest building, but they're going to build something twice the size of that. And they're going to build um, a replica of the Taj Mahal that's twice the size of the Taj Mahal. And yeah, so um, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, just a deeply fascinating, deeply um, capitalist place. <laughs> it is fascinating. I heard yeah. it described uh, on another poetry podcast as capitalism apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is sort of. Um, but I mean, I, I don't want to take away from some of the really positive things that I gained from being there. I think um, for me, it was an amazing experience um, living and, you know, like studying amongst people from all kinds of um different diaspora um, and particularly um, the Middle Eastern diaspora who aren't particularly well represented um, in places like Australia. And I think at the moment there's um, the politics of fear have taken over. And for me, it's just such a fascinating experience to see the way in which um, Islam is characterized in the West because it was very different to what my experience of Islam was and um, going to an all Muslim school. And um, yeah, I mean, I had, I had a very, positive interactions and experiences with Islam in a lot of ways. Um, and so for me, yeah, it's just interesting to come to Australia and see how um, demonized um, Islam is and, yeah, and contrast it with my experiences of the Middle East. Yeah, it's 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 horrific, really. I mean, that was my first encounter with a country in the Middle East. Um, mm. And, we yeah, we went into a mosque and I, I think mosques are – incredibly beautiful Mm. and I was so happy to be able to go in there and have uh you know explained and like I'd studied Islam at uni and things like that so I kind of had some idea but I'd never really been into a working mosque before and even just that little experience not that I had any antipathy at all towards you know the Muslim community before but like it just made it real and it made it like um a concrete thing and you sort of just come back and you feel like can we just get everyone and like walk them through a mosque one time? Like, yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. And I mean, I just find all this like paranoia about halal and Sharia to be um, to just. I mean, yeah, Jackie Lambie, you know, and Yasmina Abdul Majid on Q and A the other week. It's just, it's crazy. But, um, but the, the one thing that did strike me. I mean, I feel like I, I sort of had a more. And again, like I'm an outsider to Islam. Like I, I'm, my family is like Indian and Hindu, and so it's completely different. Um, come from a completely different cultural background. But um, what struck me um, a little bit was the interactions between Islam um, and the legal system, which I found really fascinating and sometimes um, a little bit disheartening in the way that, um, so Dubai is like this very kind of like westernized cosmopolis and you have, um, you know, for example, like unmarried couples from the West um, booking hotel rooms, which is technically against the law, but it's kind of a legal gray zone because um, it's such a hospitality and tourism hub that, um, you know, you can't bar people from booking um, hotel rooms together, even if they are unmarried, really, because it means that you wouldn't get the kind of tourist numbers that you want. Um, But it's really tragic when there are cases where um, that kind of thing uh, is 
is revealed and it results in incredibly punitive legal punishments for the people involved. So, for example, I remember when um, I was living there, there was a case in the news that um, there was um, like a young Pakistani British couple and they just got engaged. Um, they were at a Dubai hotel. They had just gotten engaged over dinner. And she went to the bathroom and um, was sexually assaulted by one of the staff. And mm-hmm. when she reported to the police, um, she was detained and imprisoned for sharing a hotel room with her unmarried, with her partner who she wasn't married to, um, rather than, you know, the fact that acknowledging that she was a victim of sexual violence. So, I mean, I found those kind of really interesting intersections between like kind of Western moral, um, cult, like moral codes and Islamic law to be sometimes quite troubling. And, um, but I mean, I also think that um, you, ha- you have to have a nuanced and holistic understanding of Islam rather than, you know, to critique it rather than having this like blanket demonization of it that you see on the news, which I, I find in the, in the West, which I find just bizarre and distasteful. <laughs> Yeah, and really exhausting. Like really, yeah, just, exactly. it's so. Um, like, when does it end? When do we yeah. get to the other side of this? Yeah, and <laughs> I, I just don't know. I agree, and yeah, it's just. Uh, I mean, especially you know, post-Trump victory and the last oh, few God. weeks have been just yeah, yeah, just a depressing time for humanity. And I mean, it just. I mean, there are a billion Muslims in the world um, and just like the tiniest sliver, you know, might be radicalized and to be tainted by the guilt of association. It's just must be so frustrating. <laughs> like I just, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it, this kind of brings me to another thing I wanted to ask you about, mm-hmm. um, which is your fantastic piece up on Overland at the moment. Oh, uh, thank you. It's called Kashmir and the Politics of the Brown Body. Mm-hmm. And uh Look, I just have to thank you because I now have a new obsession in the oh, form awesome. of Riz Ahmed. <laughs> He's I, amazing. I fell down <laughs> a massive YouTube hole last night. <laughs> I didn't sleep um, enough. I was watching Riz videos. <laughs> oh, he's so great. And have you seen him on the new episode of Girls? Because I think it's just the best thing about the new season. I haven't yet. I, that's that's lined up. That's uh, yes. my next on my to do list is binge on girls. But um, <laughs> yeah, I'm so excited that he's going to be on there. I mean, that whole like the whole girls thing is so interesting in and of itself. Mm. But the fact that he's going to be on yeah. that is so cool. Um, I but like I, that. Uh, yeah, sorry. Oh no, I was just going to say like I was so happy to read your piece because I for some reason um, I feel like maybe it's just a factor of age but I find it really hard to find new music that I like (laughs) and um yeah just and then watching those videos I was like oh my god there's this really really interesting thing going on here that I would never have discovered um, on my own and I have the same problem with discovering new music so I'm glad right I'm glad that it's been helpful I am I'm sad. I'm discovering new music through like the New Yorker podcast now. So I do feel about a hundred years old, but it's um, legitimate too. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, but yeah, I think, I think, um, Riz Ahmed, I'm so happy that his career is taking off in the way that it is. Like he's on the, um, he's in the new star Wars movie and, um, he ha- is on a Netflix show and, um, yeah, it's just so great that, um, he seems to be he he wrote an essay for the guardian um a while ago actually where he talked about how um you know so much of his career he's been typecast as a terrorist um and that was kind of the first phase of his career where he was just kind of the faceless like brown um jihadist where you know i mean it's the ultimate hollywood trope um and then in the second phase of his career he played that same trope but he kind of played a subversive version of it. Um, so I don't know if you've seen the film Four Lions. Um, but it's I like haven't this... yet. No, it sounds great though. Yeah, it's very mm. good. Um, mm. And it's kind of the satirize, um, it kind of satirizes, um, you know, politics, the politics of fear post 9-11 um, through this like absurd comedy where um, this group of um, like young um, South Asian um men uh, Muslim men in the UK plan this terrorist attack and it's just like very goofy and strange and controversial um and so that was kind of the second phase of his career where he was kind of um self it was like playing the self-aware kind of version of the terrorist mm-hmm. um and mm-hmm. now he's I think come to the stage where um his race isn't the preeminent um focus like he can just play a character that happens to be of a certain ethnic origin without the ethnic origin being the overwhelming um kind of 
plot line that drives the character, which I think is, um, which I think I hope um, pro provides a new direction for um, you know diversity in in um, media because I'm just so tired of the only kind of brown people that you see on television being brown people who um, whose ethnicity is a very core um, central aspect to them. Um, to their character, like what I find really refreshing is things like um, Aziz Ansari on Master of None. Where, yeah, love or, Aziz. Um, oh, my God. He's great. Mm. And Master of None is so good. I'm waiting for a new season. But, yeah. Um, yeah, where, you know, his race is, I mean, he's aware and his race is an important part of his identity, but it's not the whole part of his identity. There are many other, I mean, people exist in um, multiplicity. And so I think that's being acknowledged by this kind of new wave of um, South Asian artists and writers and musicians. And yeah, and that's just what I love about Kashmir is that it's just so unapologetic and um, it's it just exists in so many different dualities and it, it just captures the kind of strange um, complexity of the migrant experience where, you know, you have to be one thing to one community, but then another thing to another community and, um, you know, m balancing that difficult tension is um sort of how you live your life you live your life in duality so I yeah I'm I'm a big fan and I also just like the way that it uses humor I think that that's um just really fun and it's really so refreshing funny. and I think yeah. yeah and I actually think that hip-hop um and spoken word um are like these really fun forms of political protest like people think of poetry being like William Blake or you know the the romantic poets or the beats but I think that poetry is actually um a lot more democratic than that I mean I think poetry can be things like um Nas's Illmatic or Beyonce's Lemonade or um you know the Sweatshop Boys Cashmere I think that they all kind of to me fall into the bounds of what poetry is I'm so glad um, you mentioned Lemonade because I've been debating yes. that with myself I'm kind of like mm. this is a poem like that what she says at mm. the beginning of Sorry so what are you gonna say at my funeral now that you've killed me here lies the body of the love of my life whose heart I broke without a gun to my head. Here lies the mother of my children, both living and dead. Rest in peace, my true love, who I took for granted. Most bomb pussy, who because of me sleep evaded. Her shroud is loneliness, her God was listening. Her heaven will be a love without betrayal. Ashes to ashes. Dust to side chicks. Yeah. That's a little poem. She's just slipping it in there. Um, and yeah, the, and, and I, lyrically, it is, I think it's quite poetic too. Yeah, definitely. And I think yeah. um, I think she actually had, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a Somali poet who worked on Lemonade as well and ah. helped write some of the poetic interludes. So, could, um, could easily be, I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah, and I liked um, how there's like this visual element to Lemonade as well, kind of showing how poetry can be like visual art as well as, um, you know, words I think that they kind of complement each other in a really interesting way yeah well um, I always tell people when I'm trying to you know recruit new lemonade fans is I always <laughs> say like watch the clip at the same time yeah to start so with cool. because otherwise you're kind of missing a lot um I think it is yeah it's part of the poetry really the visuals yeah and it's interesting with Lemonade because I sort of talk a little bit about this in, in my um, piece of Overland, but um, I find that growing up when you just never, ever see yourself reflected in the media that you consume, um, for a lot of marginalised communities of colour, what I have noticed is that often the African-American experience um, serves as a stand-in for a lot of people um, because often those are the only people of colour that you have seen on television like, or at all represented in, I mean, not that, you know, African-Americans um, enjoy a wonderful, you know, representation either, but I think, um, I mean, for me growing up in the 90s, like the only kind of um, people of colour that you would see would be like Janet Jackson or... Um, boys to men <laughs> yeah. um so yeah I think I think it's really um it's really interesting the way that Beyonce's Lemonade has resonated 
I mean, obviously for, um, because it deals with black um, intergenerational female identity, it um, has really resonated with black women who very, very rarely see themselves um, reflected back. I mean, I think there was a part in Lemonade where they take a Malcolm X quote um, where he says, um, the black women are the most um, disrespected group in America. But, and and it's true. And I think that um, Lemonade was an amazing anthem call for black women, but it also, I think, provided um, like a, a really interesting representation for other marginalized um, women of color, like South Asian women, who, again, like don't really see, um, you know, the multiplicity of their identity ever reflected back at them. I mean, even the sweatshop boys, what I find interesting about them is that um, I think they're amazing. And I think that they, they offer a really refreshing new take on what South Asian identity is. But they're still quite quite rooted in kind of a male tradition. Um, the same way I would say like, you know, Kendrick Lamar is considered a poet of the streets, but he very much represents like the black male experience. Oh, um, absolutely. It's the same yeah. With, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like you listen to one of his songs and it's, um, it's wonderful, but it's very much, you know, it's male. It's the male yeah. centric songs, I guess, for lack of a better word. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so I yeah. think, um, you know, having someone like Beyonce, which kind of represents, um, you know, both the intersection between the oppression of race and gender is like, is really kind of refreshing and, mm. and rare. And so I think that's why, you know, a lot of women of color across the diaspora really, um, really have related to Lemonade. Yeah. Yeah. I basically talked to you about Lemonade the whole time, but we're not going to yeah. do that. We're going to get back to the poetry. Yes. Um, sorry, I just get excited when you no, talk. No, no, no. So do yeah. I. God. Um, and actually that kind of reminds me of something else I was going to ask you about is mm-hmm. I just kind of made that distinction between, um, you know, music on one end and poetry of the page on the other. And I know mm-hmm. that you're a spoken word artist as well. And mm-hmm. so I'm wondering how you apprehend that kind of, page stage you know continuum Um, is is that uh, a question in your mind or is it not even really that relevant or I think I I write very consciously differently um for the page versus performance what I really like about performance and performance is kind of what got me into poetry because I grew up kind of reading the classics and um sort of the canon of um traditionally revered poets who are all um sort of dead white men and I never really considered that poetry was something where my story or my voice could be part of that. Um, like it, it just, it hadn't occurred to me until um, I got to university and um, I started seeing that spoken word had, uh, was a thriving scene in Melbourne. And um, I sort of went to a few spoken word nights and what really struck me about it was that um, it was just a very inclusive space um, where people from all kinds of different um, age groups and across um, the gender and ethnic spectrum felt comfortable um, to tell their stories. And what I like about it as well is that writing is quite a solitary task. Um, and, you know, you can sit there kind of hacking away at words by yourself for hours and days. And um, you can never really see necessarily what your audience reaction is when they're reading your work. I mean, maybe someone can come up to you later and say, I really liked that part. But you can't ever be part of that visceral kind of reading, writing, um, that visceral reading experience that the reader experiences. Um, but with spoken word, you can kind of get an, an immediate feedback loop, which is kind of also gratifying to the writer ego, I think, because oh, you can kind when, of, yeah, you can hear yeah. people going mm, and like clapping mm. and, and clicking and it's, yeah, it's a, it's, and it is really, it's a collaborative feeling at those readings mm. where you've got someone who's um, yeah, definitely. Not necessarily even like a spoken word poet, like capital letters type thing, but mm. just reads in such a way that the audience is part of the poem. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think I think accessibility is um, so important. I think that people perceive poetry to be something that's very exclusionary, but I genuinely think that everyone can be and is a poet. Like yeah, if I agree. Some, yeah, I mean, everyone has a story to tell. I feel like we're always telling stories and I mean I just think poetry sort of just following that oral tradition of storytelling that sort of died out now that we've started writing things down but I just think that I mean I've started going to this thing um in Melbourne called the moth which is really incredible yes it's it's fantastic you should definitely go um they have a, a theme every month um and you have um, storytellers get up and they have to tell a true story for their, from their lives based on the theme. They've got five minutes, absolutely no props, and it's not supposed to be stand-up comedy. It's just a story. 
And I just find it really striking because I think that it attracts people who don't consider themselves to be like poets or artists or anything, um, but they are just people with a story. Um, and I just think the different ways that people interpret the same theme I find so fascinating. Um, like the first one I went to, the theme was heat. And there was a, a man who came up and told a really heartrending story about um, his friend who um, drove a helicopter in the Kimberley in Western Australia. And um, it was a 50 degree Celsius day and the helicopter crashed. And just the experience of like fishing his friend out of this, you know, helicopter that he was worried was going to burst into flames. And it was a really kind of moving um, and, you know, heartbreaking story. And then at that on that same night, another guy wrote um, talked about his um, STI in the theme heat, and I just <laughs> right, thought that was okay. great. Like it just yeah. it, I think it just cap like something like the moth. It just captures the diversity of um, the human experience, and I think it's just it's just another kind of poetry. I think I agree. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask, as somebody you know recently returned to Melbourne. Um, mm-hmm. if I want to go to spoken word night here, where should I go? Like, I don't even you know where to start. Definitely check out the Melbourne spoken word website. Um, okay. they yeah, they update it all the time with, um, events and opportunities and, um, yeah, it's fantastic. It's very comprehensive. Cool. Oh, so just pick, yeah. do you have a favorite night that you, um, I have I haven't actually been, but I've really I've heard amazing things about um, We Run with Wolves, which is at the Toff in town, which is just um, all female poets, and yeah, it's just it's supposed to be really incredible. I think it's monthly. That sounds great. Yeah, it's really good. I think. Well, why don't we dive on into this poem then that you have sure. chosen? So, uh, the, all of the poets that you mentioned in your email, I would be happy to talk about, but I was so excited. <laughs> to Robin land Cost on Lewis. Robin Cost Lewis, yeah. Yes. So how did you first encounter her work? Um, so I was listening to a New Yorker podcast actually and um, there was an interview between Hilton Oz and um, Robin Cost Lewis. This is right after she won the National Book Award um, for Voyage of the Sable Venus um, and I was just really, really struck by the premise of um, her poetry collection. So the poetry collection is called The Voyage of the Sable Venus and um, it's called that because it's based on um, a painting uh, which was title The Voyage of the Sable Sable Venus and it's sort of the central poem in the collection and it addresses the representation of the black female form in western art over 40,000 years which is really ambitious so her whole premise with that is to um, take the titles and of um, you know various artworks that deal with the black female form and kind of um, you know cut them up and um, mesh them together in in a poetic form which I thought was really interesting and really radical um, and I also think that it just represents something um, really timely which is the kind of reclamation um, of people of color of the way that they've been represented as objects for so long in the western colonial imagination um, so I was really struck by that and I mean I, I did a little bit more research on the painting um, that it was based on and it's it, Robin Cost Lewis talks about this as well because it's a very striking engraving when you see the Voyage of the Sable Venus. You've got it is um, it's quite you know, shocking actually. It is, yeah. Mm. So um, the, with the central um, part of the painting being, um, you know, um, the Sable Venus, so like a an African an African Botticelli Venus, um, and a kind of predatory Neptune on the side, and you know Venus rising surrounded by um, cupids, and um, it's yeah, and, and it's. I mean, it's a striking image, but it's also quite repulsive because you realise that um, Neptune is holding a Union Jack flag, <laughs> so it's a it's a pro-slavery um, painting. Yeah, it's like and, even like on first glance, there's something about the way that the Venus is, um, the way she's she is drawn or yes. engraved. Is there's something you just know like this is not a reclamation. This is not like yeah. we're taking back Botticelli's Venus. It's mm. it's just. Yeah, it's just deeply yeah. wrong, <laughs> something about it. Yeah, well, it's it's a white artist representing um, the sable Venus as sort of primitive and hideous and as, as was kind of the, the popular view in the 18th century of, um, you know, people within colonial nations. Um, and what I found um, really interesting, which I only discovered recently, was that um, it, the um, engraving is based on a poem 
by a writer called Isaac Teal, which is um, called The Sable Venus and Ode. Um, and that poem is about the pleasures of raping slave women because apparently bla- both the black and white Venus um, look the Not same the at same night. In the dark. Yeah. 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 So, I, yeah, it's, it's very chilling. Um, so I think it was a really, really interesting piece of art um, for Lewis to kind of um, build her collection around. And, and it's a really amazing piece of work. And, and I mean, so that's kind of the central point of the book is this um this reflection on the the female body and in, in art the black female body in art in western art and the western imagination um which i mean we can always talk about in terms of beyonce because i think it's so interesting um but i'm gonna take it away from beyonce and um and so in the first part of the book she um kind of has a few poems where two poems one called plantation and the second one which i'm going to read um a section of called um the road to Sri bhuvaneshwari which is kind of just about um sickness and journey and i think this particular poem um the road to Sri bhuvaneshwari is um really interesting because i have never seen um a poem about it's kind of a poem like tra- it's kind of like travel writing yeah but is, travel writing yeah. is so very rarely the purview of um uh, you know, African-American women and also to have um, travel writing about South Asia by African-American women and from a woman who um, I found out that she has a degree in Sanskrit, which is incredible. <laughs> I know, isn't that um, amazing? Yeah. It's so amazing. And so, I, I mean, you can really sense that in the richness of the poem because I find that sometimes you can tell when, um, you know, I think as a South Asian person, you just ha- have a deep and implicit understanding of your own culture just having I mean not through any kind of study just from kind of living it and breathing it and kind of growing up within it and so I think um for me I I was really struck by how um how authentic and how um you know deeper understanding was and then when I found out she had the degree in Sanskrit it kind of all made sense but I just thought it was an incredibly beautiful poem and I think that um it's a reflection on um motherhood on journey um and I think it was a really good poem to come before voyage of the sable venus but I'll just read the first section from it if that's okay um yeah okay um so the the poem's titled um the road to Sri Bhuvaneshwari by Robin Cos Lewis not much larger than a Volkswagen, smiling on the dashboard. Guru book, marigold so mild we can chew. What we call a mountain, they say foothill. A whole vibrant green valley of terraced balconies, rectangular rice farms carved into every facade for seven centuries. Now and then, a clay road washed out by rain. We wait. Barefoot men in Madras dhotis, bodies large only as necessary, hoist hoist twice that in boulders back up the mountains back to that place where the road had been monsoon uttar pradesh 28 days of rain at dinner someone says during the 19th century all this water caused the british to go mad they constantly committed suicide later someone else points out their victorian cemetery i smile a little that morning several seven langurus the size of six-year-olds gray and brown white and beige, tall tails curling, jumped up and down, shucked and jived on top my cold tin roof. Somehow I am still alive. I know it is wrong to think of a decade as lost. The more I recover, the more I go blind. Squat naked beside a steaming bucket, hold a small cloth. In Trinidad, one says, clot. The H is quiet, a wafer of breath, just like here. There's no telling what languishes inside the body. Not mist, but a whole cloud passes into one window and then two hours later out the other. The American college students try out their kindergarten Hindi, ha pital, ha pital, lips finger the signs script. Then the United States break open their mouths into sad smiles when they realize it's not Hindi, but English written in Devanagari, hospital. For the whole day, we drive along miles of wet, slithering clay to find a temple at the top of a mountain where Shiva is said to have once dropped a piece of Parvati, every mountaintop made holy by the falling charred body part of the goddess. An elbow fell here, here fell her toe, an ankle black and burnt, her knee, 
The road is wet and dark and red and keeps spinning. I sit behind the driver, admiring his cinnamon fingers, his white beard, his pale pink turban wrapped so handsomely. Why did it take all that? I mean, why did she have to jump into the celestial fire to prove her purity? Shiva's cool, poisonous blue, a shimmering galaxy, but when it comes to his old lady, man, he fucked up. Why couldn't he just believe her? I joke with the driver, we laugh, Gurumukh smiles back, but then I think perhaps embodiment is so bewildering even God grows racked with doubt. For a certain amount of rupees, the temples hired a man to announce to tourists, during the medieval period, virgins were sacrificed here. His bright face mirrors our orientalist tans. You're lying, I say. Save it for somebody pale. He smiles, passes me a beady. I'm bleeding, but lie so I can go inside and see that burnt, charred piece of the goddess that fell off right here. We climb up another 108 stairs. At the top, I try not to listen to anyone. An entire Himalayan valley, chiseled. Every mountain, peak to base, a living verdant staircase for the goddess to walk down. Sri Bhuvaneshwari. So yeah, that's the first section. That's just the first section. It's that's just the first section. It's There's amazing. a lot of Yeah, I think it's very beautiful. And what I absolutely love about it is the lack of, you know, the reductive orientalist view that we often get of India by travel writing. I think that um, she has a very wry and self-aware um, and sort of deep understanding. And and I love as well, um, what, what I find fascinating is that there's, um, within India and South Asia, there's quite a bit of deep inbuilt racism um, against the African diaspora. And I think that's an interesting product of colonialism with, um, you know, the nature of lateral violence is that um, people the the structure of society and the power structures are based on proximity to whiteness um and so south asians um you know it kind of fuels this um this sense of hostility towards the african diaspora because they feel sort of a sense of superiority on the colonial pecking order if you like and so i I, yeah and i mean i i find it really interesting for robin cost lewis as you know a relative outsider and as a woman who's part of the african diaspora to um firstly like take such an interest in south asia and also um you know to visit there and like write this reflection on it and and i mean the poem goes on to be like a much larger reflection um on motherhood and you know she goes on to describe this very vivid scene of um a bull giving birth to a calf and um, you know there's a line in there where the, the bull has to acknowledge and the, and the calf dies and the bull has to acknowledge the death of the calf in order to move on yeah they, um, they, and they would, hold it and they make sure that she yeah hold it for it seems like hours until she turns and looks at yes the dead at calf, the calf and it's like if he if she doesn't see it she's going to go mad and that seems to be from my interpretation of the whole poem seems to be somehow echoing you know, cost of its own experience in some way. Uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think I think it's her own experiences of maternity, but to me as well, the the bull having to look back and um, you know see the dead calf or go mad is also kind of this really interesting view on how you have to look back and acknowledge your history in order to move forward. No, that makes a lot um, more sense. I yes, think, <laughs> that's no, a great no, interpretation. I'm, I'm with you. I, I just yeah. yeah, I think that um, what I find interesting about Cos Lewis is that she says that she sometimes feels like she exists in a different century because she spent so much time kind of like reflecting on how, you know, our various histories have brought us to this point. And she doesn't like how we currently live in this world where only like a very tiny, very sanitized sliver of history is acknowledged. Um, and I think we see this here in Australia as well in terms of like the way that, um, you know, our accountability is talked about when it comes to Indigenous Australians and the way in which, um, you know, we talk about the very bloody, brutal history of this country and it's just sanitized down to, you know, this kind of nice party line that people say on Australia Day. I think I think Cost Lewis kind of acknowledges the, that in Western countries, as you know, there's often... Um, in her poetry, she acknowledges there's a lot of blood that's kind of soaked into the soil in order for us to get to this point where, and and she wants us to acknowledge that history through her work. I think so. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it reminds me of um, her poem Plantation, which I think I've got yes. here. So let me pull it out. Um, she is doing similar work in that poem, saying, um, "I'll just read this this little bit." It yeah, seems that it. she kind of 
the the setup I think is that there are there are two people and they're they're trapped in some place they're behind bars and she says to keep you happy I decorated the bars because you had never been hungry I knew I could tell you the black side of my family owned slaves I realize this is perhaps the one reason why I love you because I told you this and you still wanted to kiss me we laughed when I said plantation fell into our chairs when I said cane so tough to even hear that kind of a discussion really yeah Um, definitely but it is like I I heard Claudia Rankin talking about this in terms of her work with Citizen and Mm. Cos Lewis's work with her book um Claudia Rankin was saying you know if she'd had more time and didn't come down with breast cancer she would have looked more into um I love that phrase you just used before lateral violence I never heard it put that way but obviously (laughs) like you know there's a point at which oppression is so ingrained that you don't need to be there anymore as the oppressor you just let people do it on your behalf and and so Claudia Rankin was saying citizen doesn't look at that but I don't have to because Robin's doing that work yeah in her poetry and kind of talking about how that still operates even without yeah the oppressive definitely and I, I think I think plantation deals with that really in an interesting way as well where in that line where she says my the black side of my family owns slaves I think it's quite interesting that you know despite the fact that um you know the, our black people in America came to America in bondage there was still a history of black slave ownership um so I think that that's kind of that lateral violence as well where you know at some point as well there are people within communities of color that take on the role of the oppressor as well so yeah I think that um Robin Coslowis deals with that in a really interesting way in plantation yeah I don't know it's it was so interesting to be in the u.s last year while the whole trump disaster was crazy yeah Yeah. and it's i kind of what i kept thinking was like the volume of the conversation around race here in in the u.s is so much higher than it is in australia yeah and i felt kind of frustrated to think back on how we are so reluctant to talk about things like what Cos Lewis is dealing with here, you know, the blood in the soil. We just, yeah, we're just so, I mean, British in that way, I suppose. We're just like, <laughs> oh, don't, don't talk about that. It's very <laughs> uncomfortable. I just, you know, I'd rather yeah. not kind of thing. And um, I just don't know when we're going to get any better at that. Like, I, I just don't know. I do, I do feel like, um, you know, in order to move forward, I think it's really important. And I mean, identity politics has had a hard run recently, but I do think it's really important to acknowledge whiteness because I think that that's sort of the first step for a lot of people and it, it's deeply uncomfortable and that's why people don't like talking about race. Race is kind of the elephant in the room. I mean, mm. I see it so often with, um, you know, feminism and the push for um, gender equalities. I feel that sometimes it can be a little tone deaf as to intersectionality um, because people, you know, we've kind of, I think as, a, as an Australian society, we've kind of come to the point where we can talk about you know, gender inequality, not, not that that discussion isn't already fraught um, with difficulty, but I think that, you know, it, it's, it's somewhat acknowledged that there's a gender gap, but I think that we haven't yet got to the point where we can, we have understood that multiple systems of oppression work together um, and that, you know, the experiences of like a white woman might be different to an experience, the experiences of an indigenous woman, for example, because of the way that her gender and race um, interact. And those things are really inextricably linked. And I think a really important part of kind of moving forward and living in intersectionality and living in duality is, you know, for white people to acknowledge whiteness as a construct. Because I think yeah. what I find whiteness really fascinating because, like, it firstly, it's so nebulous and it changes depending on political agendas. Like, you know, I would argue that a century ago, whiteness was um, very centred on sort of the Anglo notion of whiteness whilst now I think it's more expansive and it kind of takes on even the southern European identities whilst you know in Australia in the past you know there's a lot of history of southern Europeans being oppressed because they weren't white enough yeah um but now I think that that discussion's kind of moved away and whiteness whiteness has become like a more united front against um the kind of immigrant other um and I think the U.S. is a really interesting example because you know there's all the talk about how in 2042 um the white people are going to be outnumbered by um, 
by the other, by um, ethnic minorities. And I find it really interesting the way that, like, because there's been a lot of fear around this, um, but it's this notion that ethnic minorities are somehow this monolith as though, like, you know, the Korean-American man and, you know, the African-American man just see eye to eye and they're part of this, like, larger ethnic conspiracy <laughs> to, like, unseat white people. I just find it, yeah, it's really interesting. Even um, the word, I, though, the word ethnic, it's like yeah, I, white whiteness is an ethnicity like what yeah. the hell it's so weird yeah. why yeah. well yeah it's become know. more of a social identity now in a way because right. it's yeah i mean i yeah i, I don't I, I find it really interesting because so much of whiteness, I think, is phenotypic. It's how you look. So, and I mean, that's kind of how, and I think the way a lot of people of color experience their race is based on how they look because that's kind of the first experience people have of your race. I mean, when they see you and they see that, you know, you have a certain complexion or, or you know, you speak a certain way, that's kind of how they, they make judgments based on, on that and whether, you know, so... I, I think it's really interesting and it plays into that whole lateral violence thing um, where you've got lighter skinned people of colour who um, get relative amounts of privilege for yeah. the fact that they have proximity to whiteness. Mm. Um, and it's sort of an interesting thing about Beyonce as well and some of the critique towards her is that, um, you know, Beyonce and Solange are arguably lighter skinned black women and so sometimes they get a larger platform and it's not to, you know, um, try to reduce, you know, their oppression, but I think that um, oppression can exist on so many multiple levels within communities of colour. And there was a book that came out last year, I think it won the um, National Book Award um, for nonfiction, and it was called Negroland by Margot Jefferson. And the book was about her experiences growing up as a relatively elite African-American, um, sort of in the middle of the um, 20th century, and the ways in which there were so many um, striations within her class of elite African-Americans based on the texture of your hair and your skin color. And I, and I think that, you know, it's it's such a resonant part of the way people experience race. I think, you know, if you, I mean, there's this whole history of people of color passing for white and, you know, living amongst white people in, for example, in segregated America and that being kind of their, their, their ticket out of oppression. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think, you know, race isn't sort of a monolith and people of communities of color experience race so differently depending on how they look. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, I guess maybe to try and answer my own question from before, if mm. if we are going to have any chance of getting past this mm. very British, um, <laughs> sorry, yeah. British people, Lizzie, like, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. No, the, the, kind of un- <laughs> the, the discomfort the discomfort, talking the about discomfort. things that are yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. If I, we're, if we're going to get past that, we have to get to a point where we're, you know, not just willing to tolerate not just willing to accept but willing to see multiplicity and yeah exactly and like accept that there's multiplicity within within all ethnicities and and all experiences and and i think that's just you know maybe too big and complicated for, (laughs) for a political speech but probably not for a poem yeah, I mean, and I think that's where so much of the power of, um, yeah, Rankine and um, Robin Cost Lewis come from is that the, this, you know, like citizen and American lyric is this sort of call for justice and this insistence that, you know, despite the fact that, you know, African-American people are considered citizens post the civil rights movement and, you know, after passing the Civil Rights Act, the fact that they still have so many parts, so many parts of their identity um, sort of called into question and they face so many oppressions, like, for example, the voter suppression laws or mm. um, the, the the brutality at the hands of the police. It proves that even though you're a citizen in paper, on paper, you're not a citizen in the same way that does not necessarily translate into real life um, and your experiences of being a citizen. Um, So, yeah, I think it's really interesting the disconnect between, you know, the notion of how it is and what it is actually like, I think. Um, That kind of gap is where a lot of their work exists. I mean, I think that applies more to to Rankine's work, but um, I think it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, it's completely fascinating. I would urge everyone who hasn't yet read citizen to just get it today and read yeah. it but um yeah i i could talk to you for hours but i just wanted to ask a, a final question of you sure. um possibly a tough one i don't know but uh in 
you were mentioning before last couple of weeks, you know, we're watching this kind of slow motion car crash happen <laughs> in the US. How yeah. are you kind of, how are you um, bolstering yourself? How are you like, because you know, I find, you know, I'll read the news and I just mm. kind of go into this headspace that's just, it feels like there's no getting out of. Yeah. Um, what are some things that are bolstering you well, as you kind of watch this unfold? You know, I was hoping when Trump was elected that, um, you know, he was going to just pare back his policies and that it wasn't really going to be as bad as we all thought it was going to be. I mean, the campaign was a nightmare and he's a complete monster. But, you know, I was hoping that the reality wouldn't be as bad as the campaign um, I thought that too. portrayed yeah, I was it as, that. yes. Um, but I think, you know, from what we saw in the first week and this flurry of executive orders, it's just been this like this incredible display of incompetence um, and cruelty. Um, and I mean, I think it's interesting because to me, it has a lot of parallels to kind of the Bush Cheney dynamic in the past where you've got this sort of ineffectual puppet um, parody as the um president and then you've got lots of powerful Machiavellian figures behind him like um you know Steve Bannon and um Mike Pence yeah. and so I mean I find it very hard to be hopeful about that but what does make me hopeful is the fact that um there are you know I mean they they had the women's march on Washington there are genuine signs of protest like when the, the Muslim ban came in there were actually people at airports spontaneously chanting so there, there is a sense of resistance um and a sense of anger and spontaneous protest and really i mean what does give me some heart is that he was not really democratically elected like he won through the technicality of the electoral college but really he lost the popular vote by three million votes despite the fact that he likes to say it's fake news it's, it's like objectively true and so i mean that gives me hope the spirit of protest i think um the political satire has reached this new golden age and renaissance which definitely gives me heart i always watched um, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, who I think is a genius. And I love um, his stand-up and um, his political satire. And I think he brings this really interesting outsider's perspective to the to US politics that I really relate to. Um, and I think, and he's just had his memoir out called Born a Crime, which I would highly recommend as well. Oh, right. It's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's very that. good. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that he he did a segment a while ago where he compared Trump to an African dictator because he's from South Africa. And um, I think he compared Trump to um, Idi Amin. And I mean, obviously, it was a ridiculous parallel. But I mean, there are some kind of scary parallels you see between Trump and a lot of authoritarian dictators. Um, you know, his disdain for free press, um, his disdain for the a spirit of protest, um, you know, his need to constantly be validated um, and, you know, to be propped up um, and to be surrounded by sycophants and his, you know, obvious love for Vladimir Putin. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of things that are really unnerving, but I think the fact that there are comedians making great um, and entertaining art about it is great. And I think that it's a real time for um, artists and poets to really um, be part of the resistance. And I think that um, poetry in particular has had a long history of being kind of a, a vehicle for social protest. Um, and so I think that, you know, going forward, um, you know, the more kind of artists that um, write work for, I mean, I, mean I, I really don't think that, you know, you necessarily have to write work that's politically targeted because I think in a lot of ways, you know, albums like Kashmir or Robin Cost Lewis's work, um, I think that in themselves they're, kind of a tool for empowerment because they prove that the voices of the people that Trump is trying to silence, you know, African-Americans who he think all live in burning inner cities and, you know, South Asian Muslim men who he thinks are all threats and, you know, Mexican people who he thinks are rapists. Like the fact that they are reclaiming their narratives and telling their stories, I think is powerful in themselves because, I mean, when you can reduce people down to a caricature, when you can reduce them down to, you know, a little slogan or a tagline, it's very easy to dehumanize them. But when you hear those people taking back their um, their voices and their narrative and their identity, I think that's really powerful because it gives you humanity. At the same time, I don't I don't lose sight of the fact that art is still kind of like a very 
privileged sphere and you know for the african for the average um you know mexican woman waiting awaiting undocumented mexican immigrant awaiting deportation the fact that there's a poem written about her isn't going to really buy another mexican undocumented immigrant isn't really going to give her power but i do feel like um it all feeds into this larger spirit of resistance, which means that there will be, um, you know, that lawyer to work pro bono and help those undocumented immigrants or that people won't take these things lying down. People will take the free press seriously. So I think that, yeah, I think that art, you know, plays an important role in in the same way that it played an important role in the civil rights movement and the anti-Vietnam war movement. Um, So yeah, I, I, I think it's just, it's a depressing but prescient time to be making art, I think. Yeah, and I don't think that um, any of us sitting down to write a non-fiction piece or to write a poem need feel that we're somehow wasting time or... Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and, you know, that's only part of our day. Like, yeah, Plenty of exactly. other things we can get on with in, in the remaining hours as well. Um, yeah. So... Yeah, I think it's it's probably really natural, and I think a lot of people did in the in the early days kind of question, like in the editorial for the lifted brow. I think the editors say like we're sitting here proofing this edition as Trump takes power, and we yeah. don't know if this is even worth doing. But yeah, I'm so glad they did because I got to read your piece and <laughs> thank I you. To meet you. I hope to see you at a spoken word event soon. Sounds great. Cool. Better call Becky with the good hair.